All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. I'm joined today in the studio, socially distanced. We're about about, about six feet, more or less. We're, we're a long ways away. Um, <laughs> by Mike Iverson, my friend here, who is the Director of Evangelization and Discipleship at Holy Apostles Catholic Church, my parish. And uh, if you if you think about that in your head, the Director of Evangelization and Discipleship, the acronym is DEAD. Were you behind the the naming convention there, Mike? Was I wasn't. You? It was it was uh, bestowed upon me. It uh, it was. I had no input whatsoever. Did you raise this as a concern? Like did, did, I did. Did, actually. did anyone think about this? Uh, well, yeah. I, I don't know how much thought was given to the actual um, acronym there, but uh, I, I did. I did say it almost immediately that we're actually striving for the opposite. Exactly. Uh, in yeah. this position, do so. not be dead. Don't be dead. Right. Just dead be people. just be the dead, but not dead. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, it's a pleasure to have you here, Mike, in the studio. Uh, I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for a long time. Um, to my listeners, Mike has got me into the, uh, we'll call it an art of pipe smoking. Yeah. I'm not good I mean, at it. It's an art. I still, I smoke too fast and uh, get the little tongue bite and everything, but I'm learning as I go. And, uh, and Mike's been a, a very patient teacher and helping me figure out, you know, what kind of tobaccos I like and how to, uh, how to smoke correctly and all that. So, Anyway, a little bit more about Mike. He is the father of three children. He's been married to one wife, fortunately. One wife, yep. Uh, for 19 years now. Just celebrated their 19th anniversary a couple months ago, so happy anniversary. Thank you. Uh, he's only been Catholic for, I mean, I say only, but about a decade. So 10, yeah. 10 years ago, was received into the church. Prior to that, uh, was Protestant. And in fact, in 2006, you were ordained a Protestant minister, right? So That is correct. An ordained Protestant pastor, uh, and you were working for... New, uh, young life at the time, young which, yep. um, correct me if I, you know, uh, misrepresent any of this, but it is a international non-denominational Christian organization that focuses on evangelizing young people. Correct. Yeah. The okay. world's world's largest non-denominational Christian youth and young adult outreach. The world's largest. That's impressive. World's largest. How many, how many youth are in the program? Uh, I think, I think as of last year, I, since I don't work for them anymore, I don't keep uh, uh, quite as uh, sure. I don't have my finger on the pulse of the numbers like I used to, but about 2.4 million. Oh my goodness. Uh, in 110 or so countries around the world. Okay. That is, I can see why that's the largest in the world. That's yeah. impressive. Yeah, it is. Um, and so you even did that for a little bit after you became Catholic, right? Yeah. For, uh, for five years. And as, an, as an area director, you were responsible for entire regions of the U.S. where Young Life was active. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it was. It was not quite an an entire region of the U.S., but more a uh, uh, couple of zip codes, sort of. Okay, gotcha. Sort of geography. Yeah. Cool. Um, so let's talk about your decision to become Catholic, and we don't need to make this whole episode a conversion story. I, there, there's a time and a place for that, and sometimes it's really interesting to hear conversion stories. Um, there's a lot that I want to talk to you about tonight, especially given your current position working on catechesis in the church, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So we'll kind of save time for all of that. So just give me kind of the highlights here and maybe let me kind of target the question by asking you this way. What, when you were Protestant, what was the straw that broke the camel's back for you in terms of becoming Catholic? You know, there was, there was kind of a, a whole haystack of those, of those straws, honestly, but um, without going into, you know, a long diatribe, the, the the initial thing that started my dissatisfaction, I was raised in the Evangelical Free Church of America, so kind of solid uh, Baptist-y, Baptist-flavored Bible church. 
Uh, when I was young, one of my earliest memories was watching a, uh, a a movie. It was it was called The Mark of the Beast, and it was this apocalyptic rapture movie that came out, I think, in 1980. Um, and I probably watched it in 1981 or 1982. So I was. It, it sounds kind of like. I mean, I think that'd be a, about the right time, right? When um, in the sort of cultural milieu, there was a lot of talk of like the rapture. Yeah. End times. What's the uh, Tim Tim LaHaye Left Behind series? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the Left Behind series came about I don't know twenty years later, eighteen years later okay. or so. But yes, in the in the early nineteen eighties, there was this whole and late seventies, there was this whole movement of you know freak out, get ready because the rapture is coming. So so you need to be ready for that. Well, in the way I guess I mean I'm I'm thinking here and I'm thinking on my feet, so I'm probably getting some of the dates wrong. But it seems to me that that was also kind of the high tide of some movies like Poltergeist yes. or. Uh, the, exorcist, the exorcist, right? Exactly. So like the other side of the yep. spiritual uh, realities as well. Yeah. There's this kind of real, I guess, you know, awareness or maybe cultural obsession or mm-hmm. fascination with the spiritual paranormal in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's, uh, you know, I think it followed the the 60s hippie movement and then yeah. this kind of the 70s energy crisis and all that. And then people were starting to think about uh, demons. about demons and, and angels times, and yeah. end times and the new age and be on the lookout. And yeah. There was some uh, uh, particularly... Uh, <laughs> dated music at the time like this guy named carmen uh, look him up on youtube you can still find some of his but uh, is he a christian artist he was a christian i know artist. who that is then. Oh, yeah yeah, yeah. No, mean, I... just <laughs> ridiculous there was yeah. ridiculous uh, all kind of across um protestant christianity at that point but the point with that particular movie is i was i was three or four years old and i watched this and it was about uh what happened after the rapture so there's these there's this contingent of of christians that are left behind and at the end of this particular movie there was this little uh, blonde-haired boy with a bowl cut that looked kind of like me at the time. You had and a bowl cut? I did. That's amazing. Uh, my, yeah. All right. Was, we won't get into that. <laughs> um, nor will I show you any pictures. But um, at the end of this movie, these these Christians who'd professed their faith were in prison cells because of their uh, because the Antichrist was in power, right? So they were they were imprisoned, and then they were told that they had to renounce their faith, and. Very, again, the very end of this movie, this little boy is talking to this old man who's not a, a relation of his, but it's, as I recall anyway, some some man that he developed this relationship with in prison there because his, his parents were gone. And uh, the guards come in and they say, okay, so, you know, are you a Christian? Do you renounce Jesus? And the little boy said, no, because he, he stayed strong with, to his, with his faith, right? And he had a red balloon in his hand, on a, like a helium balloon in his the, hand. The boy did. The little boy okay. had this red balloon in his hand. And then they lead the boy out, and there's a guillotine outside, right? Whoa. So they don't show it, but they lead the boy outside, and then you hear the shing of the guillotine, and then oh. the balloon floats up past the no. uh, past the prison window, right? So that was one of my Wait, earliest. How, you said three I was, or four. I was three or four, <laughs> um, and what? I don't know. I don't know what. Uh, I don't know why there wasn't an age uh, age restriction on the movie, but I think the the greater church uh, mindset was that, you know, it's it's about, it's about the end times and Jesus and everybody needs to know this and it doesn't matter how old you are. Wow. So that freaked me out. Right. Uh, Cause I was impressionable. I was young. So for the, the next, gosh, probably eight years or so, I, every time I was at a mall or at the supermarket or whatever, and I couldn't find my parents, I thought, oh my gosh, they've been raptured. I'm left behind. I'm going to be that little boy with the red balloon. Wow. So that, it, when I went retrospectively, when I think back, that was one of the foundational moments in my uh, early Christian formation of who, of what God is like, right? And 
and this whole idea of the rapture again it, it scared the the stuffing out of me i mean understandably so that's that's so um it's so stereotypical uh, in a way right just like this formative experience that we have as a young child that leads us to have a persistent belief about right. something meaningful in this case god that then shapes the next decade of your life yeah pretty important stuff to not uh, to to be scared of god and and not yeah. uh, not realize that he's a loving god so yeah, that's so sad it, it wasn't it wasn't awesome i um i can tell you for sure it wasn't awesome so so, so how did this i mean uh, we don't need to spend too much time on this but just how did that like manifest itself beyond you getting scared at the at the grocery store were, were you um you know did you resent going to church every day or was it about like kind of um, having to be, you know, kind of almost scared into obedience because of the rapture. It was, it was being scared into obedience, uh, because of the rapture. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and then I didn't, I wasn't resentful uh, of going to church. I was heavily involved in the Awana program. If you're familiar with that, it was, uh, I was in it. Yeah. I was, yeah. A, I was a sparky. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I went through the whole thing. Um, so I was really involved in church until, uh, really my, the summer between my eighth and ninth grade year. Okay. So, so going into high school. 13, 14 ish. Yeah, yeah. Thir- yeah. 13 at the time. And, uh, as an, as a brief aside, I, I will get to the, the original question of what, uh, what made me want to become Catholic. Um, but I had a youth minister. I had long hair. This was in late eighties, uh, kind of so Kurt Cobain. Post, post bowl cut. You go to post bowl cut. Cobain. I had, yeah, I had the, I had the Kurt Cobain thing going on. I skateboarded and, and wore flannel shirts a lot as nice. I, as I still do from time to time. Uh, which is coming back around. So I'm, it is for I, sure. I was, I was into flannel before flannel was cool. You get so the lumberjack I'm, look. I'm very now. hipster. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, anyway, this youth pastor, I got my hair cut and the youth pastor came up to me and he, uh, he walked in front of a picture of Jesus that was on the wall in, in our youth room. And the picture of Jesus had long hair and a beard, kind of the stereotypical yep. uh, Jesus picture. Probably very white looking. And as very well. white. Yeah. yeah. He was, he was Swedish. Um, and, uh, <laughs> fair and, hair, high cheekbones. Yeah. <laughs> He's beautiful, actually, uh, with his long flowing hair. And uh, and anyway, my youth minister comes up to me, puts his hand on my shoulder, and he says, "Oh, Mike, you got your hair cut. That makes Jesus so happy." What? Yeah. And and as <laughs> no. again, I mean, as I'm looking at this long haired Jesus, like, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's something not right here. So after that, I, I kind of was uh, pretty strongly disenchanted with the church. Um, then came back uh, late high school and uh, and early college and. Um, so how that rapture thing plays into into my becoming Catholic is that I realized for the first time when I was about 20, 19 or 20, that the rapture isn't a universally held Christian belief. That they're actually, even now, the majority of Christians on the earth don't believe in the rapture. They don't believe in this pre-tribulation. Jesus is going to come and, and take know, everyone away. You're right. And, and vanish, you know, disappear his people right. and leave, leave those who aren't uh, on his side to, to suffer. Um, and then, so I, I realized, oh my gosh, not everyone believes this, but I was taught that everyone believes this. And that was almost like a creedal fundamental of my evangelical Protestant faith. Now, is that something that maybe you don't know the answer to this? Is that something that was kind of unique to your upbringing in that? Or was it like the E-free, evangelical free denomination that really holds to that? Or It's, uh, it's it wasn't unique uh, in my in my upbringing. It's a pretty universally held uh, belief in most 
fundamentalist evangelical denominations, regardless of what they are, if they're a Bible church or yeah. if they're E-free or a lot, most Baptists. But it is it is unique in its concentration in the United States. It's not a, necessarily a worldwide phenomenon by any means. Interesting. And it didn't come about really until John Darby uh, in the in the late 1800s. That was when this whole idea was propagated. So we had... 1850 years of Christianity without, without, this ever, that. without this ever being anyone's in anyone's, uh, uh, you know, vision whatsoever. Right. And then it kind of took off and I understand it's an attractive idea that, oh, well, uh, you know, Jesus loves me, so I won't have to yeah, suffer. Exactly. Jesus doesn't want you to suffer. Yeah. He, just, he, he totally doesn't. Yeah. He yeah. didn't, he didn't ever say anything about picking up a cross and carrying it and following him or anything. And uh, I'm I, sarcastic. I, I yeah, apologize. I was, was going to say, just to clarify, Mike is definitely using his sarcastic tone, which is sometimes hard to pick up on. Mm-hmm. He's this very dry sense of humor. But, but I mean, one of the one of the beautiful things about Catholic theology is that there is um, there's a strong emphasis on suffering and how our suffering yes. is redemptive. And so Jesus allows us to suffer, uh, indeed wants us to suffer with him. Uh, and so our suffering in that way always has meaning. And so this idea that Jesus would come and sweep us away before the tribulation just to save us from suffering is rather absurd, I think, in, mm-hmm. in Catholic theology. Yeah, yeah it, it doesn't seem to be consistent with uh, what Jesus said or or how the human life plays out. Or, yeah, or how, I mean, any of the early Christians' lives played out. I mean, n- none right. of the apostles were saved from their suffering. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, tell that to tell that to Thomas or, right. <laughs> or, or Peter. So this is so interesting, though, because... One of the things that I think about when you're telling these stories, and in looking back on my story as well, I think this this is something that most people can resonate with. There are these unique moments in our upbringing, in our childhood, in our sometimes in our adulthood, but these these moments where like one person says an offhand comment that Jesus is so happy that you cut your hair, that really affect your outlook for sometimes a decade or more. Some, sometimes right. it's a lifelong thing, right? And so yeah. it is it is really amazing. I think, and this is we can we can get into this a little bit later. But this is why catechesis is so important, mm-hmm. so that we don't have those moments early in a Catholic child's life that then leads them to believe that the Catholic Church is just, you know, all a bunch of uh, superstitious fools, for example, right. or a bunch of people who are just afraid of going to hell, um, or people who think that they need to earn their salvation right. um, through their own works, right? I mean, little things like that. I mean, I cannot tell you, and I'm sure that you come across this all the time as, as a a person working in religious education at the parish level, so many people tell me they grew up Catholic and so they know what the church teaches. Yes. <laughs> and right. those people, I mean, what, what I tell people is that there's no one you will find who declares himself more knowledgeable on the Catholic church and her teachings than someone who grew up Catholic or went to Catholic school and has since left the church. Yep. Absolutely. That kind of person thinks they know all of it. And normally it's because there were these moments like the ones you just told me about Yeah, that were so impactful to them, even if they were wrong or impactful in the wrong way, right. that they've never forgotten those. And, and I think, honestly, I think the majority of the time, uh, this, this miscatechesis, if you will, it, it's, I mean, it's not intentional. It's usually done with good intent. Like this youth, youth minister of mine, right. he was trying to encourage me, you know, like, Hey, it Jesus. looks great. <laughs> you know, um, he, he did it in a, in a very, so in funny. a very awkward turtle style, but he, that's what he was trying to do, but it, it had, a profoundly different effect than his intention. So, uh, yeah. And, and to your point with, uh, with, uh, catechesis and particularly the people that know the most about Catholicism, usually being those who went through six years or eight years or whatever of Catholic school and then right. left. Yep. Uh, one of the things that I like to tell parents, uh, because we do at, at our parish, we offer, um, 
faith formation for kids from age four all the way through 12th grade. And then we have adult education classes after that, that hopefully, hopefully pick up uh, that people will pick up afterward. Uh, one of the things that I ask parents is, okay, so y- your kid has been in, in faith formation. They've been learning the faith now for four years. So they have the equivalent of a second grade education. And you think that that's enough in, in what other realm in society would a second grade education be considered enough. That's a great point. And we're studying, this is, this is the God, this is the church. This is 2000 years of church and, you know, infinite, uh, years of God. And it's the biggest, most rich, most deep, most profoundly interesting and challenging topic that we could ever fathom. And yet you think that three or four years is probably enough, like to, to wrap your, your mind around it. And it, and it just isn't. Yeah, that's a really good point. As I was uh, racking my brain for something that would that you would make an argument about, you know, like a second grade education is good enough. I was thinking about um, how I just took my kids to the park this evening before you arrived and saw a boy who I, t- I was talking to his dad and the boy is five years old and he's a really good bike rider. He's got his balance down. And he knows mm-hmm. how to ride the bike. And, um, you know, so he's not quite in second grade. He's probably depending on how old of a five-year-old is, right. Kindergarten, like kindergarten maybe first grade. Yeah. Right. Um, and he's got the bike down. And so, you know, that, that might be something where like the parent's job is done once they teach the kid how to ride a bike. And maybe that happens by second grade, but the difference is you don't stop riding the bike at that point, right? Like it's something that you just keep doing and you keep doing, you keep inculcating that, um, that stands in stark contrast to, you know, uh, religious education classes where parents think my kids hit their first communion, they're done. Right. We don't need to do any of this right. anymore. Because what what ends up happening more often than not is that person stops going to mass. So that family right. goes to mass irregularly. They become the creaster crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a priority for them. And so it's really not like riding a bike. And I think maybe, maybe that, maybe, maybe I'm taking this, uh, this analogy too far, but maybe it's telling because on the other hand, if you don't ride a bike for two years, for five years, maybe even for 10, 20 years, you'll still know, you know, it's people, that's why there's that expression. It's like riding a bike. You never forget. But I think sometimes people take this approach to the faith that it is like riding a bike. It's something that's nice to have. It's something that's enjoyable to do when you want to ride a bike. And it's something that once, you know, once you've received communion, you've had your first communion, once you've had the second grade (laughs) formation, Mm -hmm. you can go back to it whenever you want. But that obviously is a complete distortion of what the Christian life is supposed to be. Absolutely, and and to take the to take the bike analogy even further. Oh, just let's, is, well, is, let's, let's just let's just drive this thing right. Yeah, heck yeah. Well, <laughs> pun intended, right? Um, the is a is a bicycle the ultimate locomotion? Is that is that is you know is that the 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 greatest possible form of transportation that we can experience in life? No, point. yeah, no, it goes so much further and. Learning, learning the, the principles of inertia and whatnot yeah. and in riding a bicycle is great. And that then prepares you for hopefully driving a car someday. And then if you go on in certain fields, that could prepare you for flying an airplane. Right. Um, you, you understand bodies in motion. You start to understand physics, not through a textbook, um, not, not, not through just a mere intellectual means, but through experience, right? Through experiential means. Yeah. And the same with our faith. If, if we're not continuing to delve deeper into the riches that, that are uh, the study of God and theology and the, and the study of the church, then we're really stuck riding our bicycle the rest of our lives when we should be 
a, you know, in a, in a, in a uh, fighter jet or maybe even, spaceship. maybe yeah. even a spaceship. I didn't want to geek out. Oh no, totally. Let's talk go. about that. But one of my favorite movies is the Martian. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, all right, well, let's go back to your story here. So, <laughs> yeah, so we left let's this wrap with, that up. um, with Jesus being happy that you cut your hair. Jesus was, yeah. was indeed happy <laughs> that he cut my hair, that um, I cut my hair. White Swedish Jesus, yeah. I believe most yes. accurately was happy that you cut your hair. Hey, um, so anyway, this, this idea then that I, that I discovered that the rapture wasn't something that was hard, fast, universal Christian theology, uh, was this, was the beginning. That was probably the, the first straw that, uh, that broke the camel's back, back to your original question from there. Oh, I love the, I love those seeds though. Those, yeah. those things that just plant and they're just like, just like the Mark of the Beast movie planted this very strong seed that yes. God was a wrathful <laughs> God. Uh, you know, this, this other uh, interaction planted a seed that mm-hmm. like, Oh, maybe there's, maybe there's more out there. And that was exactly it is I, I then realized or came to start thinking, well, gosh, what else that I learned might not be a universally held truth. Yeah. Because, you know, obviously everything, because I was in this one denomination my whole life, um, everything was the gospel truth, whether it was the gospel truth or not. Um, so then salvation, uh, we were we were Calvinist um, as a, as a denomination, even though they don't really lead with that. But okay. predestination. Yeah, I didn't know that about Ephraim. Okay. Yeah, um, you know, if you again, if you uh, if you boil it down, it's basically Baptist and Baptists are basically Calvinist. Yeah. You know, it's it's not as pure as uh, Presbyterian Calvinism by any means, right? But it's they're not quite as like as upfront about it. No, yeah, it's, it's, but it's down there. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, so. Then it came to really to predestination was the next thing. Okay. And, uh, and the thing that I couldn't reconcile was if God created us all and he creates some people predestined for heaven, then necessarily the flip side of that is, is he's creating people for hell. And that isn't, isn't compatible with, uh, this God who we know to be love. So soteriology then, and this is while I'm, I, this was going on while I'm in seminary, um, after I was ordained, which was weird that it was that progression. But, yeah. So I started with Young Life. I was ordained uh, after a year of seminary and then uh, kept going. And I actually stretched out a, a three-year master's degree into uh, into a nine-year program. As one does. Yeah. Well, you know, I was working full-time and had three kids and all For that. For sure, yeah. Uh, so soteriology became the, the straw, I guess. Um, I was looking at uh, Wesleyan theology and Methodist, uh, Methodist tradition uh, looking more deeply into into Calvinism in its various iterations, whether it was Reformed or Presbyterian or, or what have you, um, and then looking at, at various Bible churches, got um, got pretty interested in the um, the uh, kind of the emerging church movement of the early mid two thousands, like two thousand five. Is that the uh, is that the Vineyard? Is that part of that? Uh, there there. I don't know if you'd really consider them to be emerging church, but like. There was a number of like Mars Hill Church that, oh, sure, uh, yeah. that Rob Bell uh, was the pastor of and um, uh, one in Portland, the Imago Dei Church. Okay. Very uh, Catholic sounding, probably yeah, not very Catholic. Yeah, not, not very Catholic, but they were in the emerging church movement. One of the things that it that it first introduced me to was liturgy. Yeah. And because there was this kind of neoclassical approach to the liturgy. Because the idea is go back to the way the early church was. Exactly. Yeah. Go back to the way the early church was, but it definitely wasn't Catholic because we know that's wrong. Right. That's kind of the presupposition right. uh, of, the, of the movement. But it did introduce me to uh, to the beauty of the liturgy and to 
to art. And, and there's some element of sacramental appreciation yeah. in that as well, yeah. right? Not uh, not in the not in the Catholic sense of sacraments by right. any means, but yes, there is a sacramental yeah. appreciation. Things like baptism and right. uh, communion have a lot more gravitas right. than they do in in most right. uh, Protestant uh, Bible church sort of traditions. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was kind of this this growth. I had this really, really steep growth curve in that, uh, in that particular, um, point in my life where I'm in seminary, I'm learning, uh, you know, a, a ton of theology, my uh, degrees in theology and, uh, coming to realize that all these things that I held to be true were not necessarily just face value, easy, um, easy answer truths and that they could be delved into a lot more deeply. So that's that's what I started doing. Um, systematic theology is what I was what I was studying, and I the beautiful thing about that is I had a uh, a Finnish professor, um, Doctor Vellimatti Karkinen from Helsinki. Great name. Yeah, he's a he's a Finnish Lutheran, um, really smart guy. Uh, he literally he well he's he's the most uh, the most influential systematic theolo- Protestant this systematic theologian that's alive. Um, he was a, a student of Wolfhart Pannenberg, if you know who he I don't who no. he was. Um, that's okay. <laughs> um, but Pannenberg was this this great theologian, kind of of the, the previous generation, and then uh, Dr. Karkinen took over for him. Anyway, he's taking his class in systematic theology, and he had us read, uh, of all things, he had us read the De Verbum and the Lumen Gentium wow. Wow. and a number of documents from the Catechesis of Trent. And so that was the first exposure that I'd had to anything more than, uh, as we talked about, your super well-informed Catholics who went to Catholic school and then left, yep. uh, left the faith. That was the only Catholic witness that I'd ever heard. Well, then I started reading what the Catholic Church actually believes and actually teaches. And it was, it was a complete revelation to me in that I agreed completely with everything that I was reading. And I'd come to those, uh, those positions prior to that through parsing through the scriptures and all these various denominational beliefs and kind of cutting and pasting what I, what I could, uh, what I could believe scripturally and ethically right. and morally, right. Um, to have a consistent, consistent ethic of life, for example, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't mean you just pick and choose right from the cafeteria, but you have to, that has to follow through for your, for your whole, uh, your whole ethos. Right. Um, and there it was in, in Catholic teaching, and it, I couldn't believe it. I, I really was completely astounded that the Catholics seemed to have it right because they were Catholic, and Catholics are crazy, and they're bad, and they're adulterers, <laughs> right, and right. all that. Um, at the time, that's what I thought. And then I, I kept delving more deeply into that, and then uh, about a year later, I became Catholic. Wow. Yeah, so that was the quick and dirty version. Yeah, so— uh, And it was still long. It was. Yeah. I mean, that was, that's it's totally fine though. Uh, it's a great story. Your, your, uh, story has some parallels with my own, uh, namely that there was a sort of a seed planted early on where I thought maybe that maybe this Catholic thing has something to it. Mm. Uh, I knew a lot of smart, well-formed Catholics. I knew a lot of, um, smart, not well-formed Catholics, yep. uh, who weren't particularly devout Catholics. Um, but when I started digging into it, when Sally and I started reading through the catechism, we were like, oh, this is really, this is not what we thought. This is, There's so much more. I mean, Mariology is a great, a great example of this, right? Mm-hmm. As a Protestant, you think the Catholics just worship yeah. Mary. 
which is true in a sense if we're talking about hyperdulia versus latria, right? But it's not true in the sense that Protestants mean it. Right. And, uh, and there's also no context to that, right? Like why, why is Mary uh, afforded a special place in vener- for veneration in the Catholic mm-hmm. Church, right? And so when we were reading through the catechism, these sections on Mary were just all of a sudden making a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And yes, they still kind of offended our Protestant sensibilities to some degree, but once properly contextualized, you could see it. Sally often used the example of putting on Catholic glasses, right? And by that she meant viewing the world with Catholic eyes mm-hmm. in such a way that everything coheres and everything makes sense. Yeah. Um, now, of course, when we, when we try to use this analogy with family members, then it was just like, you know, I think uh, one of them said that, you know, they were, they were praying that we were not looking through glasses, but just, you know, looking, uh, <laughs> looking at the truth. And it was like, okay, you're kind of missing the point here. It's going to be a bad analogy in that sense. But uh, the point was, you can't just look at one part of Catholic teaching and be like wrong. Uh, you have to look at it in its entirety and then you can see how it does fit together. Right. And you know, I, I wish that someone had told me that earlier because it is coherent. It's very consistent. Absolutely. It's very coherent. It's very beautiful. It is very complete. It is comprehensive. Yeah. And I didn't know any of that. Um, but I shouldn't have been surprised to find that that was the case. I mean, there are, there are many, many holy, men and women who have gone before us in the Catholic faith. And, uh, I should have recognized that sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I guess, you know, going back to this theme of religious education now, so you're a, yeah. you're a, what, what many parishes would call a DRE, right? Director of religious yeah. education. Your role at our parish is probably a little bit more expansive than that because there's, there's some evangelate evangelization focused activities mm-hmm. in that. Uh, and certainly for formation in our parish happens differently than at many other parishes, which yeah. is great. But so speaking in someone, speaking as someone who's in the sort of DRE role, what are your biggest challenges trying to get people in the church catechized? The the biggest perpetual challenge that I have is is relating the absolute fundamental importance of well catechized parents um, and kids, but the that the parents need to be learning. So that way their kids can learn. I, I just said it today in a video that I was doing. You you can't just rely on on the uh, the do as I do as I say but not as I do yes. approach to catechesis. If it's not something you're living, if it's not something that's part of your life, and it's not something that's a part of your family that's being actively engaged and lived out, it really isn't then it's just information. It's mm-hmm. just like studying any other textbook, right? If, if that's how you as a parent and you as a, uh, in the general directory of catechesis, it says that parents are the primary catechists of their children in the faith. And if you, if you as a primary catechist, you would rather go watch a Broncos game than, uh, than go to church. Or if you would, if, if you just don't, if you don't take it seriously, then your kids aren't going to take it seriously. And it's not, um, as it, as it then pertains to my job, I can't fix that. Um, none of our catechists can fix that. There's no book that you can give a kid. There's no curriculum that you can uh, give a family that's going to be the the magic bullet to solve that problem that really has started at home with the idea of, of our Catholic faith just being something you learn about but not something you really do. So that's, I mean, that's the number one um and you know it's it's a multifaceted issue, but that's the biggest uh, issue that I have. And then more specifically, I guess in that is 
uh, relating the wise, the wise of the faith, and not just that we uh, that we're teaching our kids a, a certain like a Baltimore Catechism style question and response set of answers, right? But rather that they understand why this matters, uh, and that that I think is something that we've at least in recent history. I, I know I've only been Catholic for a little over a decade, so I can't speak too far in uh, into the into the twentieth century. But it seems as though we've done a really good job of giving kids answers, but not providing them with the actual questions. Um, and that that's absolutely fundamental. If we can engage kids' curiosity, and the same goes with adults for that matter, but if we can engage the curiosity and the sense of wonder and the, the reality that God is so immense and so uh, so great, and this this life with Christ that we're called to this this life within the church and this life of uh, f- constantly discovering who God is more and more fully is such an adventure. It's such a great. Um, it, it really is the great adventure um, in life. And I mean, really, if if all else went away, what would be what would be left but God? Right. It's the most fundamentally important reality in existence. Yeah. I mean, we were just saying the other, the other night um, on when we were together on Tuesday, right? God is the non-contingent source of all contingency. Right? Absolutely. I mean, so from, so metaphysically you strip everything else away. Right. And the one thing you cannot strip away is God. Right. Um, yeah. So uh, when you said the great adventure reminded me of Stephen Curtis Chapman, who you yep. probably are familiar with, you know, mm-hmm. the saddle up your horses. We got a trail to blaze, right. et cetera. One of the great songs of my youth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, good song. Okay. So, <laughs> so back to this idea of the parents being the primary catechist of your, yes. of their children. Do you run into problems in the parish helping them get that? Because I imagine that as, as a DRE um, or a dead, as we say, uh, I imagine that you have parents who basically say like my parents, you know, what, what does my child need for, for confirmation or, yeah. or for the Eucharist? Right. And what is the church going to do to get them there? Mm-hmm. Um, and the parish certainly has a role to play in doing that. And I think, right. I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like maybe the, the role of a, a parish director of formation is really kind of to, um, to fill in the gaps when the gaps need to be filled, mm-hmm. but the, the parents need to be doing that. Um, right. Not every parent can, um, but the parents really should be trying to. And mm-hmm. so I imagine it's probably challenging when people come to you and basically say like, okay, my child knows nothing. You know, they've slept through mass ever since they were a baby. Right. Twice a year. Um, yeah, exactly. They sleep through the Christmas and Easter masses or, or we don't even bring them to the midnight mass or whatever. Right. Um, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to cast aspersions here. I think really most times it's, it's a lack of understanding of yes. the gravity of this and the gravity of the parent's role. So how do you, how do you deal with that? I mean, um, how do you how do you try to sort of shape a parish culture to put the onus of formation on parents for their children? Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's a it's a constant uh, dance, really. But what we've had at least a reasonable amount of success with is we for so first of all we of all we don't have a we don't have any drop off programs. That's so good. Yeah. If the kids are in class, that means the parents are in class, Perfect. and that's just a that's a first level commitment. So if you want to do faith formation here, this is what, this is what that means. Um, just, just on that note real quick, Sally taught, um, religious education for second graders. I think it was at one of our previous parishes. And it was, it was awful because, um, the idea was families go to the early mass and then, 
they go to faith formation or the parents take their kids to faith formation mm-hmm. during the second mass. But what would happen is, and you could probably see where I'm going with this, parents take their kids to Sunday school, drop them off, and then the parents go to mass. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. Yeah. You are missing the point here. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a double whammy because yeah. the parents aren't are, are missing out on that catechetical opportunity and then their kids are missing out on mass, exactly. right? I mean, exactly. Come on. Yeah. This is a, that's a double whammy. Um, so that's, that's kind of our first level is it's not optional. Um, I, I, again, I'm sarcastic. So tongue in cheek, I say, we don't have a drop-off program. Um, I, we don't allow parents to just do this slow drive through the parking lot where the minivan sliding Perfect. door opens, the kids jump out and they, and they <laughs> drove, drive away. Right. Uh, so we don't allow that. So what that does is, Really, I mean, it's, it's a way more for the parents than it is for the kids. Absolutely. Right? So the parents all come together in our parish hall. We have 100 or so adults um, who then, their kids get dismissed to class, and I teach a you know, 30, 30 to 40-minute lesson on, on whatever the, the topic is. So it could be the Holy Trinity, or it could be Jesus Christ, or it could be the kingdom of God, or whatever. And then they discuss it amongst their, their small round tables. Yeah. yeah. So the six to eight people at a table, I put discussion questions on the table and then they have about a half an hour to interact with other parents. And what that does, uh, ideally, and it's working pretty well is it starts to build a culture. It builds a culture of, Oh yeah, this is what we do on these, these particular Sundays with faith formation. And while our kids are in class, we're going to not only learn some stuff, but we're going to be able to have an engaging conversation and reflect on how this is impacting our lives with other parents whose lives, hopefully it's impacting as well. So that, uh, that cultural shift, I think is the, is the, the, the most important part of family-based catechesis and preparing the parents then to be truly the primary catechists of their kids. Um, and it, it, it takes a while. And there's certainly, uh, there's certainly people all across the spectrum uh, as far as their level of preparedness and their readiness and their, their, cate- their own catechesis. Um, but what it does is it, it, uh, it, it kind of has a twofold effect. One in that the folks that are there know that they have other people who are in the same boat and it's not just them feeling like they're uh, like they're insufficient because they don't know everything there is to know about God, which none of us do. Right. Um, But then on the other side is it, it works as that, um, that cultural peer pressure uh, where if, if a parent comes and they've been slacking off, like that's obvious because they don't have anything to say in the discussion. So it, it kind of helps them to, to boost their game in that regard as well. Um, so we're kind of trying to lean into both the positive and the negative reinforcement of this. Uh, and now, yeah, I mean, it's, it's smart. Now, is this a unique model among Catholic parishes, or are you aware of other churches doing similar things? Uh, there are definitely some other other parishes doing similar things. I don't know if there's, I don't think, at least in our diocese, I don't think there's anybody that's doing it exactly the way we are. Sure. Uh, by any means. And it was started... It was started at least a decade ago at Holy Apostles, and it went through a number of different iterations in that uh, in that decade. And then, uh, for a little over four years ago, when I started, um, we we restructured it more with more of this um, more of the focus on building a culture and more interaction and far less lecture. Um, it used to be a lot more luxury. So it, the adults were basically in a class just like their kids, um, and I and I really don't want that because I want. I want the uh, the wealth of experience and richness of knowledge that's present in that room to be shared with each other Absolutely, and not just yeah. be hearing from me all the time. Do you do like assigned seating so you kind of can 
pair of people by their experience level or formation? Uh, not anything quite that official, but what we do have is a, there's a number of, uh, I guess plants oh, okay. we call them gotcha, that, yeah, uh, sure. that I kind of ask yeah. as, as they come in to look around and see where yeah. people are, are sitting. And if there's tables that obviously look like they're not thriving in their conversation to go sit at one of those they tables and be a facilitator. Yeah. Exactly. That's smart. Okay. Yeah. And this, just this last year we actually started, um, we started a couple and it, it ends up being some, you know, sometimes it's two tables, sometimes it's three tables, but of Spanish speaking discussion in particular. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And that's been, that's been huge because there's not a, not an overwhelming majority by any means of native Spanish speakers, but there's a, there's a strong contingent, For a strong sure. percentage. And I discovered, I mean, it's, it's a, after, uh, after the fact, after we started doing it, I thought, duh, why didn't, why didn't we do this uh, to begin with? But the discussion that folks can have in their native language is so much better than for sure than, uh, yeah. speaking a non-native language. So that's really helped, uh, to that's great. boost the, boost the overall vibe. Now I just love, um, I, I love the gift to the, to the church in America that, uh, native Spanish speakers can be and yeah. often are because they are growing up in families and households that take their faith very, very seriously. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure you've seen these people at, at daily mass at Holy Apostles, but there are, there are uh, a significant number of mm -hmm. native Spanish speakers who are there. And these are like grandmothers bringing their grandkids to yeah. mass. And it's just so beautiful yep. to see that. So I, I didn't even know that we were doing that at our family faith formation, but I'm really glad to hear yeah. that, that we are um, making a space for, for them to contribute to the life of the parish. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's again, been a, been a real boon to the, to the general um, feeling of both welcome and, and also the, the catechetical impact of the, of the faith formation program. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Mike and I continue this conversation for a while. So what I'm going to do is break it up into two parts. You just heard part one. And in part two, uh, we talk about some really interesting things, including political activity and how Catholics should vote uh, and rejecting some of the false political binaries that are often presented to us. So uh, stay tuned for that coming next week. Until then, let me know what you thought of this episode. Zach at Creedal Catholic, Z-A-C at CreedalCatholic.com. And you can send me a note if you want to get in touch with Mike. I'd be happy to put you in touch with him and, uh, and connect you there. So send me a note, Zach at CreedalCatholic.com. And until next time, God bless you. Thank you.